DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. This week on the show, how technology can help build communities. Quite literally, as this professor in South Africa demonstrated by 3D printing a house. This house was 3D printed by postgraduate students with no experience, who have never been on a construction site, never built a house in their entire lifetime, but they managed to print this house in eight hours. Elsewhere, building materials are being recycled to create new bits and pieces. This so-called urban mining technique uses existing resources rather than digging up new raw materials. They are regular bricks, but the material has been recycled from buildings. There are buildings made from cement, brick and stonework. And there's a company that has created a process in which they collect the materials, crush it and make new bricks out of it again. And how an internet connection can help bring knowledge and business opportunities to remote villages in Nepal's mountain regions. The one moment that I would never ever forget in my life, that once we connected the Kumjung school and once they click on that button that starts searching, and they went to the images and they could see the images of their school. And, you know, that smile when they were looking at each other. Coming up now on the show, stay tuned. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Internet access is often taken for granted in urban areas around the world. If it's not a Wi-Fi connection, our smartphones usually have reception and let us send emails, messages, and even stream videos while we're on the go. But it's a different story altogether if you go to more rural areas. Almost half the world's population is still without internet access. People in poorer, remote regions lose out, because the repercussions are far greater than not being able to send a few messages. They miss out on opportunities for education, business, and development. Laura Salm Reiferscheid went to visit a pilot project in Nepal's Himalaya Mountains that sets out to connect people in what's believed to be the world's highest community network. The first rays of sunlight reached the still sleepy villages of Kunde and Kumjung in Nepal's eastern Kumbu region, leaving them sparkling under the thin layer of snow that fell last night. The quiet above the villages is broken by the hum of an approaching helicopter with a large cargo net dangling on a rope beneath it. It takes the pilot just a few minutes to land, drop off the load and a few passengers, and return to the air. Men and women who have been waiting for their deliveries pack cardboard boxes, sacks of rice and tins of vegetable oil into baskets, hoist them onto their backs and make their way back down to the villages. David Searing-Sherper is one of them. He's had a washing machine delivered, which he now single-handedly carries to his lodge in Kumjung, a two-story stone building with a green tin-sheet roof. He and his wife live there too. The helicopters are a lifeline for the people of Kunde and Kumjung, which lie a few minutes' walk from each other at an altitude of almost 4,000 meters in the heart of the Sagamata National Park in the Himalaya Mountains. The only other way to reach these villages is by foot. 
for example, if I have, uh, you know, the I want to build my house, and if I need uh, something, the property to the, you know, about the uh, two thousand kg, three thousand kg, about uh, how much uh, we need for the one house, and more easy, and they bring to the time to time, and for the easy for the local people and for who need uh, more necessary things, it's very important for the, you know, the, like uh, local people. Delivery by helicopter is expensive, though, at 165 Nepalese rupees, or 1 euro 60, for each kilo that is airlifted up to the mountain villages. Flammable goods like kerosene and gas cannot travel by air and so must be brought up by donkeys and yaks, a trek of a few days from the closest road. Actually, this is the way most goods arrive. Kunde and Kumjung have electricity now, and since last year even running water, but life up here is still tough. Nowadays, like most of the 1,700 people who live in the two villages, Dawa moves to Kathmandu during the harsh winter months, which have become more unpredictable due to climate change. He then returns to the mountains at the end of February to stock up his little convenience store and get his lodge ready for the tourist season. As in most countries around the world, Nepal's tourism sector was hit hard by restrictions during the pandemic and the villagers are hoping for a new start. But Tsering Wonshu Sherpa, who runs a tourist lodge in the smaller village of Kunde, explains that even before the outbreak of COVID-19, not so many visitors found their way to Kunde and Kumjung. It's kind of a hidden village, so yes, and it's, I don't, and I think it's not promoted well, maybe, or I don't know, we don't know the main reason, but yes. I mean, nowadays there's few people coming in, but they just come for the day and then they'll go back. So um, mostly they don't stay here and spend the night. The two villages lie a couple of hours off the famous trekking route from Lukla to the Mount Everest base camp. Not many hikers make a detour. But if they do, says Tsering, they don't regret it. Most of them, they say it's a piece of heaven when they come up here because it's very quiet. And then the, it's all like a local community and, you know, there's no much people around. I mean, not like a, what do you call, like a town or... There's no like disco bars or snooker bars, and that's why the people, they love the place. Tsering thinks part of the problem is that many trekking guides come from the lowlands. They don't know the area well and simply take their clients on hikes to better known destinations in the Kumbu Valley. Tourism business owners like him hope that an initiative to provide the villagers with high-speed internet access will help them raise the village's profile and attract visitors who want to stay and experience the local culture and Sherpa hospitality. Lodge owners could use booking platforms and homestays could be advertised online. Shepal Doji Sherpa is part of this Everest Community Network initiative. Local from Kunda and Kumjung are not getting much benefit from tourism, even though the whole valley is dependent on tourism business. So the idea of homestay is born to attract tourism to come over here and experience the Sherpa culture, Sherpa food, Sherpa traditions and make some very good relations with Sherpa families. So that's the basic idea.
because what happened at the moment is in the main trading till there are many lodges but they are western influence and you don't you come over here not only to see the mountains but also want to come here to see experience the culture see the culture and people so you don't experience those things on the main trekking trail so the idea of homestay is to offer tourists a really good experience of Sherpa culture traditions food and everything and also local can make some money until very recently that only been patchy mobile phone coverage and a few lodges have an unreliable and often slow ADSL connection that comes and goes. Then a pilot stage of the internet project connected the community center in Kunde and the Edmund Hillary School in Kumjung via a microwave link relayed from the Everest View Hotel, which sits hidden behind the tree line on a hill above Kumjung. In the coming month, the plan is to expand the network by bringing an optical fiber line to the villages and connecting households at an affordable cost. There will be training for business owners on how to make the most of the internet and on the maintenance of the network. The project is supported by the Nepal Internet Foundation, which works towards overcoming digital inequality in the country. Financial support comes from the Internet Society, a global non-profit organization that advocates for equitable access to the Internet. According to Navid Hak, the Internet Society's Infrastructure and Connectivity Director for the Asia-Pacific region, this is the highest community network in the world. He was there the day the local school was connected. The one moment that I will never ever forget in my life, that once we connected the Kumjung school and we told the students sitting in the lab that now you have internet access, can you start using internet or start browsing internet? And most of them opened Google. At least the six screens that they were in front of me, they all of them put Kumjung school as their first search word. Kumjung secondary school. And once they click on that button that starts searching, and they went to the images and they could see the images of their school. And, you know, that smile when they were looking at each other and, they, you know, that anxiety and that smile and that excitement on their face, I would never, ever forget in that my life. Because I think that moment was when I said, yes, Naveed, we have done the right work for the right people. The plan is also to offer the teachers professional development opportunities through a series of remote lectures. Gawang Doji Rai, who goes by Andy, the principal of the Edmund Hillary School, says everyone needs to be connected nowadays. According to the national curriculum, computer classes are in fact mandatory. But while his school has a well-equipped computer lab, the internet was too slow to use in any meaningful way. With the new faster connections, things have changed, says the principal. We have uh, some more fast internet so that we can source many things on the internet and also the students are also sourcing many things what they need. And now the world is dependent on the internet because all the activities are done through the internet. They can do the trans bank transition through internet okay and uh, we teacher also can uh, source many things through internet what we are confused and we have to teach the student so we are getting benefits advantage from this internet. Andy also hopes that in the future 
more people will be able to come back to their mountain homes if they can do their city jobs remotely from up here thanks to a good internet connection. Opportunities at the moment are limited. Besides catering to tourists as guides or porters, people live off subsistence farming or are dependent on relatives sending remittances from overseas. Most young people leave for further education or to find work in Kathmandu or further abroad in Australia, the US and Europe. One of them is Singbe Gombu Sherpa. He left for university in Australia and has just graduated with a computer science degree. The 25-year-old is back for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic to visit his parents in Kunde, but will soon return to Australia to look for a job. It's kind of sad sometimes. I wish like everything, everything remained the same, but just for a better life, just for a better opportunity, there's, you know, everyone goes away. <laughs> it's mostly because like the central government is like, firstly very very corrupted like the government is rich the people are poor and you know even though like even in Kathmandu like although a lot of young people want to do something like it's not easy there's always the government is making it harder for you if we work hard just like how we do abroad if we do it here the same way like we can do it the same way here but then the outcome is not as giving like you know how what we can do abroad because the government is not organized the system is no good that's the main reason or else like nobody wants to leave their home you know that's the only reason in 2022 nepal was ranked 110th out of 180 countries by transparency international's yearly corruption perceptions index corruption as well as red tape make starting a business a long-winded and costly process Mingmar K. Sherpa says she too would not have come back after completing medical school in the Philippines if she had not gotten a job as a doctor at the local hospital in Kunde six years ago. Like the school, the hospital was established in the 1960s by New Zealand mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary, who together with Tenzing Norgay Sherpa was the first to reach the summit of Mount Everest in 1953. Mingma herself was born at the hospital and would come here as a child. The volunteer doctors who worked here back then inspired her to go into medicine. We are mainly focused on primary health care. So, yeah, we do like, yeah, a little bit of everything. So we see like all type of cases. Yeah. And then depending upon the condition, yeah, we try to treat them here. And if we can't, we refer them to Kathmandu. The main disease is just um, the cough and colds, yeah, chest infections, yeah. Generally the infections are skin infections, urinary tract infections, injuries. And then the pregnant women, they will come for like antenatal checkup. And we do vaccination for the children, family planning for the women, yeah. Patients who are referred to Kathmandu, depending on their condition, have to walk for a day to the nearest airport or must be carried there on horseback. More critical patients are transported by helicopter, often at a great expense to their families. The hospital's catchment area includes some 9,000 people, and it has two outreach clinics that are even more isolated and poorly connected than Kunde. Mingma believes that good internet connectivity 
would improve her ability to meet her patients' needs. Sometimes when you have like any patient and if we like if we need like further consultation, it's very hard to talk with our colleagues without internet connections. While the people of Kunde and Kumjung hope that the internet project will create opportunities for them, Shepal also believes it can help preserve the Sherpa culture. All that most of us know about the Sherpa is that they are excellent mountaineers. Yet, more often than not, it is the foreign climbers who are celebrated when peaks are reached, while the Sherpa who guided them, prepared the tracks, fixed the ropes and carried the loads are rarely mentioned. So as part of the Everest Community Network Initiative, a podcast recorded in the community center is in the works. So the idea is there's so many Sherpas hidden stories and mountains and living in such a high altitude. So there are many, many stories which we think worth it to bring out on the internet so people know more about Sherpa people at the moment. People know Sherpa as a climber, as a porter. But we are not only that, but we are a lot beside porters and, and climbing guides. We are ethnic group come from Tibet a long ago, some 500 years ago. We are very humble, shy, shy nature, humble, and very kind people, I would say. Because we live in such high altitude, so we are strong and good enough in, in mountaineering. But besides that, now a lot of shapers uh, go to school, go to university, and we are same like other humans. Sometimes the people around the world come and they regard us as extraordinary, extraordinary, and we are strong and we carry a lot, we do a lot, we do impossible things, but that's not true because we are human, we are same like others, and we do what other worlds are doing, and yeah. Shepal says there's so much more to say about his people. Hopefully, we'll soon be able to hear their stories. For DW, this is Laura Salm Reiferscheid in Kunde, Nepal. This report was supported by the Internet Society. When we return after a short break, we'll hear how a professor in South Africa wants to 3D print entire houses. In South Africa and in Africa as a whole, uh, the waste from, uh, from, from the cow is actually utilized to build houses. Uh, and they are very thermally efficient products. So we are going to try it to actually 3D print with the cow dung. Imagine this. People need shelter, and within eight hours, you've 3D printed a house for them. That's what a professor at the University of Johannesburg is envisioning with his students. That could help solve South Africa's housing crisis, because these 3D printed houses are supposed to be quicker to build, and even cheaper than regular brick-and-mortar homes. Heiko Wirtz met up with the makers of the 3D house, and Ben Russell has the story. The house is concrete grey, covered by a metal roof, 
and its walls show a distinct pattern. This modern, stylish-looking home is South Africa's first-ever 3D-printed house, with 40 square meters of living space. It was designed by Professor Jeffrey Mahachi together with his students. He heads the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Johannesburg, and says it takes only eight hours to 3D print an entire house, without a floor slab and roof. That is something I find very hard to believe. <laughs> well. We will be showcasing and we will be prototyping uh, several houses in the next two months. So we will invite you and you actually see us in action. But one critical thing is that this house was 3D printed by postgraduate students with no experience. We have never been on a construction site, never built a house in their entire lifetime. But they managed to print this house in eight hours. The printer looks like a mix between the R2D2 robot from Star Wars and a mini excavator. Unfortunately, today though, they're not printing anything. Professor Mahachi says that 3D printed homes have many advantages. He says components can be printed in no time at all, and he says they offer better quality than conventional brick and mortar homes. The third thing that we are looking at is actually sustainability. The house is energy efficient. Right? There are houses with less carbon emission, and we still believe that you will be able to create new job opportunities in the marketplace. For now, a small 3D printed house still costs about the same as a conventional house. But Professor Mahachi expects that costs will drop by at least 30% in the future. He says this is because one should not only look at construction costs, but also at costs accumulating over the entire life cycle of a house. If we look at life cycle costing, it means that we, from inception, during design, materials, construction, maintenance, running of the house, all those costs must be taken into account. And when you look at the life cycle cost of this uh, 3D printed house compared to a conventional house, then you see that the cost saving is much, much more than 30%, could be in the order of 60% plus. They're currently making sure their 3D printed house meets all legal requirements, for example, regarding fire safety and architectural stability. And it looks like it does, says the professor. Meanwhile, research into new printing materials continues. The researchers are currently experimenting with clay and waste materials like cow dung. In South Africa and in Africa as a whole, uh, the waste from, uh, from, from the cow is actually utilized to build houses. Right, and they are very thermally efficient products. So we are going to try it to actually 3D print with the cow dung. Professor Mahachi is confident that with government support, even people who are not well off will have the chance to own a beautiful, safe 3D printed house. And I believe that this technology is the new revolution that is going to ensure that everyone has got a house in South Africa. It's the solution of the future. Ben Russell with that report by Heiko Wurz. And as we all know, we don't have endless amounts of resources at our disposal. Using cow dung as building material is one option to be resourceful, as we've just heard. Now in Switzerland, near Zurich, researchers have built an apartment from recycled materials. Walls made of old glass, kitchen counters from melted plastic. they even walls that can be taken apart and recycled if a wall is no longer needed. Anne-Sophie Brendlin has this story by Katrin Hondel. 
Every city is home to some treasures that usually remain undiscovered, because people would prefer to throw them out. Take construction rubble, discarded glass, or household waste, for example. Most of us would not want to collect that, but the concept of urban mining takes these hidden gems and turns what many people consider trash into valuable sources of raw materials. As they say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Enrico Macchesi is someone that knows that all too well. He works as the innovation manager at the Swiss Federal Laboratory for Materials Science and Technology, or EMPA for short. The concept of the urban mine, as the name already suggests, has to do with the city. The city becomes a warehouse for materials. And we no longer take materials from natural mines, but instead find them around the city, the urban mine. A good example of how a city can become a treasure trove of raw materials, especially for construction, is an apartment that was created by the EMPA Research Institute in Dübendorf, close to Zurich. It's called the Urban Mining and Recycling Experimental Unit. This urban mining and recycling experimental unit really checks all the requirements that a building has. It comes down to the kinds of materials that are being used. We used recycled and recyclable things. But it also has to do with the way it was constructed. To put it simply, you have to construct buildings in such a way that they can be easily and cheaply dismantled into single materials again. And here, we managed to do that virtually 100% for the first time in this apartment. Take the brick wall, for instance, which separates the open kitchen from the living room. The bricks are not cemented. Instead, they are beaded onto metallic rods. That means the wall can easily be deconstructed again for new projects. And even the bricks themselves have history. They are regular bricks, but the material has been recycled from buildings. There are buildings made from cement, brick and stonework. And there's a company that has created a process in which they collect the materials, crush it and make new bricks out of it again. Everything in this apartment is recycled and can be recycled again. And nothing has been coated, colored or glued. And it even looks incredible, especially the walls in the bathroom and the kitchen countertops, which are made from bright glass ceramics. And here, with the lighting, you can see how beautiful the material actually looks. Enrico Macchesi glides his hands over the soft, shiny recycled material. This is a glass top that is produced from scrap glass. You can still see the individual pieces of glass inside. And the production process is very energy efficient because the glass won't be completely melted, but instead only heated up to the point that you can press a countertop from it. So this process recycles trash, needs little energy and creates a great product. The curtains in this apartment look fancy as well. They're made from cellulose and are compostable. The walls are stuffed with old jeans that are noise and heat insulating. The Swiss researchers want to show people that building and furnishing a home using completely recycled and recyclable materials is not only possible for homeowners, but also affordable. It's not more expensive. It's all about how much is implemented. If I only do it selectively, and we can prove that here with our projects, then I can build cost-neutrally and be more sustainable. The Urban Mining and Recycling Experimental Unit is a circular economy laboratory of sorts. Living here is being tested too. And apparently, the living is easy in a home forged from recycled trash.
The apartment is always occupied by young people. Students in shared living are there right now, and they think it's great. We've only gotten positive feedback. They feel at home there, and they really like it. Anne-Sophie Brandlin with that story by Katrin Honde. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy. Hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Top fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show for this week. For more World in Progress episodes, just go to dw.com slash World in Progress or find us wherever you get your podcasts. The studio team was Hitke Tegtmeier and Thomas Schmidt. I'm Sarah Steffen saying thanks for listening and bye for now. Mm-hmm.